So today we're going to continue in John chapter 1, our second week in the book of John. So if you've got your Bibles there, let's open to John chapter 1. Father, I thank you for this awesome book, showing that you are God, that you are the preeminent one, you are the creator of all, and life comes from you, light comes from you, Lord. You are the originator of all these things, you are the eternal being, you are the eternal God. And uh, we just thank you for who you are, and we thank you that even though we're so small and so insignificant, you still think about us. And uh, thank you, as we're going to learn today, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week we learned that the overarching message of the Gospel of John is twofold. The theme, or the, the main purpose of the book of John, uh, John twenty thirty one. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So that's John's purpose for writing the, the Gospel of John, is to convince the skeptic, and encourage us as disciples to experience greater life and intimacy in our relationship with God. So let's um, read up to verse 28. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's this John the Baptist. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we're born of God. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now this is a testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? 
What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So let's go back to verse 4. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So in him was life. The word, Jesus, is the source of all life. There's no life apart from him. Now, the Greek word translated life is zoe, which means the life principle. It's not bios, which is the life that we have, the biological life. So this life, the zoe life, is the light of men, speaking of spiritual light as well as natural light. So it isn't that the word contains life and light. He is life and light. So if you take the opposite of that, what you've got is without Jesus, we are dead and in darkness. We are lost. And we have an inborn fear towards death and darkness, as in Hebrews. Constant fear of death. And verse 5 And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or overcome it. So the Greek word translated comprehend can mean either overcome or understand. And both meanings or translations are correct. For the darkness cannot understand or overcome Jesus, who is the light of the world. I mean, for three hours the earth was darkened when it seemed the light of the world was extinguished, in Matthew twenty-seven forty-five. But three days later, he was back, <laughs> praise the Lord, um, to shine in our hearts as the bright and morning star and the day spring from on high, Revelation twenty-two sixteen and Luke one seventy-eight. So the light cannot lose against the darkness. The darkness will never overcome it. So you go into a dark room and you flick the light on, what happens to the darkness? It's gone, okay? The darkness will always be overcome by the light. And this is a picture of what happens in us. We have darkness without Christ, but when we accept Jesus, the darkness is vanquished. The light always wins. The darkness cannot overcome the light. Verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Here, the apostle John introduces us to this really interesting guy whose name is John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is a prophet. He's called the greatest of prophets. And as a prophet, he speaks to the people on behalf of God. And as a priest, if you reference Luke chapter 1 verse 5, he spoke to God on behalf of the people. And that's what ministry is all about. Ministry is both prophetic and priestly, talking to people about God and talking to God about people. John the Baptist is one of the most important persons in the New Testament. He's mentioned at least 89 times. Now, if you read, I haven't read 
the whole New Testament in one day and counted all the times, but I just I got that from somewhere. John has the special privilege of introducing John the Baptist has the special privilege of introducing Jesus to the nation of Israel. And he also was given the difficult task of preparing the nation to receive their Messiah. He called them to repent of their sins and to prove that repentance by being baptized and then living changed lives. So verse 7, This man, John the Baptist, came for a witness, to bear witness of the light. So what is a witness? If you're in a court case, what does a witness do? It's just All we do is share what we know to be true. That's it. That's our job. So we're not called to be attorneys. We're not called to debate, argue or convince. That's not our role. We are called to be witnesses, to share the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth concerning what the Lord is doing in our lives. So an example, I see you got a new car, someone says to you. Wow, you sure are lucky. Now, if you're a faithful witness, you'll tell the truth and say, I'm not lucky, I'm blessed. The Lord provided this car for me. Or, I see your new car was towed away, someone says to you. You must be angry. (laughs) If you're a faithful witness, you'll tell the truth and say, I know God will work this out for good. He always does. So we are a witness of what we know to be true. Witnessing doesn't need to be confrontational or argumentative. It's just simply us being free to share what the Lord is showing me, or for us to show what the Lord is showing us. We shouldn't feel any pressure to convert or convince anyone, because that's the role or the job of the Holy Spirit. He comes to convict. That's not our job. Rather, we find great pleasure in sharing what the Lord has done, is doing, and will continue to do in my life, or our lives, as well as the truth He has already revealed to us. So God shows us stuff in the Word, not just for our relationship with Him, but also so we can share it with other people. The second part of verse 7, that all through Him might believe. Now Second Peter 3.9 tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the desire of God's heart is that not one person should die without knowing him. So think of the person who bugs and irritates you the most. Who is that person in your life that irritates you the most? I want you to remember this one thing about that person. The Lord is madly in love with them and desires that they be saved. So just remember, this person is bugging you. They're loved by the Lord and the Lord desires for them to be saved. So the scripture says that John was sent for a witness that all through him might believe. Now the word all in Greek is a really interesting one. It means all. (laughs) Sorry, dad joke there. Verse 8. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. So this was written quite late, about 75 AD. And people, as people do, were already beginning to worship John the Baptist. So think of the Baha'i religion, that mentality that teaches that there are many men of equal greatness. Jesus is good, it says. So was John the Baptist, Moses, Buddha, Muhammad. So the Apostle John here is stopping or getting rid of refuting this idea that other people are the same as Jesus. He's making it crystal clear that John the Baptist is not Jesus' equal. 
One of the main things that John the Baptist is bearing witness to is that Jesus is the Son of God. Right, verse 9, That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now what was God's first act of creation back in Genesis? He made light, that's right. He is the source of light. Jesus is the true light, that is the original light from which all light has its source. In John's Gospel you find a conflict between light, which represents God and eternal life, and darkness, which you can think of as representing Satan and eternal death. And this is indicated in chapter 1 verse 5, And the light shines, present tense, in the darkness, and the darkness has not been able to put it out or lay hold of it. And that's a literal translation. And this concept of this this war going on, this struggle, is repeated several times in the Gospel of John. So I'm just going to put the the verse on the screen. One of them is John chapter 3, 19 and 21. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. So people love either the light or the darkness and this love controls their actions. If you love the light, you live as in the light. If you love the darkness, you live as in the darkness. Throughout the Gospel of John, you'll see both attitudes revealed. So people will not understand what the Lord is saying and doing, and as a result, they oppose him. John chapter 7 through to chapter 12 records the growth of that opposition, which ultimately led to the crucifixion of Christ. But more verses about Jesus being the light and the struggle, the conflict. John 8 verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And John twelve forty six, I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. So as I said before, if we don't have Jesus, we're in darkness. Now there's one more scripture I'd like to read on this topic. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 3 to 6, these verses picture salvation as the entrance of light into the dark heart of the sinner. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts, so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. I love those verses. i just read that last one again. For God who said, Let there be light in the darkness, 
has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. So at the end of time, no one will be able to say that he didn't have an opportunity to know that there is a God. The light has come and it lights every man who comes into the world. So Romans 1 tells us that creation around us is a testimony to God's reality and that our conscience within us verifies his truth. Psalm 19 states that the heavens declare the glory of God and there is no place on earth where their voice is not heard. So whether a man looks up to the sky around at creation or within his own heart, he is left without excuse regarding the existence of his creator. So every man knows innately, intuitively, that there is a God. Now, if there is a um, someone in the darkest, most remote corner in the earth who's never heard the gospel, but they are hungering and thirsting after a saving knowledge of God, then God will do whatever it takes to contact that one. He may choose to speak to him through an angel, a miracle, or through you. If you're one of those people who's wondering why God doesn't seem to be doing anything about those people, he's not letting those people know, then maybe God's calling you to go and (laughs) reach out to those people. You could be the messenger that God uses. You can be that witness. We can be that witness to those people. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Verse 10 is interesting. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. The world is actually three versions of the same Greek word, and they have slightly different meanings. So, going to the Greek dictionary, where it says, He was in the world, it literally means the surface of the earth as a dwelling place of mankind, in contrast with the heavens above and the world below, so on the earth. And the world was made through him. That world is the universe, the universe as an ordered structure. And God made the the universe and everything in it. The third time the word world is used, and the world did not know him, it's a figurative extension of the meaning of cosmos. People associated with the world system and estranged from God. So people of the world. And for example, 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Don't you know that God's people will judge the people of the world? But he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Our human nature is so corrupt. It shows how deep the rejection of God in our human nature is that we do not know our own creator. He came, but we didn't know him. And that's really bad news so far, right? So he came, and his creation, the human race, didn't know him, didn't recognize him. 
But this first verse, first the first word in verse twelve is but, and like in Ephesians and other books, but <laughs> God presents this really nasty picture of total destruction, total depravity, and total hopelessness, and then He gives the good news, and here it does the same thing. So, but as many as received Him, to them. He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Luke one thirty one, and you shall call His name Jesus. The angel said to Mary. So the name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation or Yahweh is salvation. You will receive power to become a son of God when you believe that Jesus is not merely a savior or even the Saviour, but that He is your Saviour. And that's when you experience salvation. It's like the, knowing how a parachute works, knowing that a parachute will save you, but not putting it on. It's got to be your parachute. It's got to be your Saviour. Verse 13, who were born not of blood. So, your grandfather may have been a fantastic Christian, or... You might have 14 preachers in your family tree. You might have a rich spiritual heritage. But God doesn't have any grandkids. Your faith is not passed on genetically. It has nothing to do with blood, which speaks of descent or heritage. It's a decision you need to make. Nor of the will of the flesh. So it doesn't have being birthed into God's family does not have anything to do with our desire. And the reason is... In Romans 3.11, Paul tells us that there is none that seek after God. No one really desires him. No one follows him. No one seeks him. So we don't come to him because we were seeking him. Nor the will of man. And it's got nothing to do with our determination. I can be determined as I want to be as good a person as I want, but it's not going to work. And And the last one there, the last clause is, but of God. In other words, it's impossible for human achievement to get us into God's family. It's only a work of God. It's a gift of God. Though some rejected this revelation, others received him and thereby became children of God. They became children of God through the new birth, being born of God. So God does it all. It is his sovereign work in the hearts of men that draws them to himself. I've got a little quote here. It says, Wait a minute, you say. Didn't verse 9 say that his desire is that no one should perish? Why then doesn't he do his sovereign work in the heart of every man and draw everyone to himself? Well, that's a good question. And I don't know the answer. (laughs) I do know that we serve an enormous God and he has given every man the opportunity to choose him. And yet God has retained his right to choose whom he will. So, how can these two principles be compatible? Again, I don't know. I do know that according to Romans 8.29, God's foreknowledge is a big factor. But did God choose us because he knew we'd choose him? Or did we choose God because he'd already chosen us? (laughs) I don't know. If you think too long about this, your brain will probably short circuit. You'll get so frustrated that you'll beat your fist against the wall and finally concur with J.B. Phillips who said, if God was small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. 
And then you'd fall on your face and worship him saying, Lord, I don't understand it all, but I thank you for choosing me. And as someone else said, if you want to know if God's chosen you, then you choose him and you'll find he's chosen you. (laughs) So there you go. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Greek word translated dwelt literally means tabernacled or encamped. That reminds us of uh, the, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and Moses building the tabernacle and God tabernacling among them. So the word, the logos, the creator, sustainer, the reason for all things became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. If you go back to Exodus and you look at the original tabernacle, the outside was covered with badger skins. It was really plain and nothing much to look at. But the interior was adorned or covered with gold, silver, fine embroidery and precious stones. Because the Chabod, the, the Shekinah glory of God, was inside the tabernacle. Now the same is true of Jesus. Jesus was so ordinary looking that when Jesus went to portray him, he had to kiss him to identify him as being the Messiah. Because he didn't look different. He wasn't like 10 feet tall or anything. He was just an ordinary guy. But, If you go to Matthew 17 and the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory within him, God allowed the disciples to see who he really was. The glory within him just came out and he he transfigured. His clothes became bright white and the angels came down and stuff like that. And it was just, yeah, it's amazing that Jesus humbled himself so much because he didn't lose his glory. He just chose not to. He chose not to have the honor that was due to him. He chose not to receive the honor due to him. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So, just as a Chabad, the, the glory of God, was seen in the tabernacle, Exodus 40:34, it was also seen in his Son. So, it's the same word, Chabad, there. The Shekinah glory. In Old Testament times, only the high priest on the Day of Atonement dared enter the Holy of Holies to behold the glory of God. But now, because of his atoning work on the cross, as Jesus rent the veil of the Holy of Holies, we can behold his glory daily, freely, and intimately. And I just want to remind you of that type that we looked at in in Exodus um, 33, verses 18 to 33 where Moses asked to see the glory of God, and God says, you can't see me and live, but he put him in the cleft of the rock, put his hand over him to protect him. God's glory passed by, and then Moses was able to see his glory. And that's a picture of being in Christ and being Jesus taking our punishment, taking the wrath of God. So John testifies to this as an eyewitness, even as John the Baptist testified. John the Apostle could say, I saw his glory, the glory belonging to the only begotten of the Father. And now the word beheld is stronger than the word saw or looked. John tells us that he and the other disciples carefully studied the glory of the word made flesh. It's not something they took a casual glance at. This is something that they studied, they really paid attention to. Uh, The next phrase is full of grace and truth. So the longer I walk with him, with Jesus, and the more I learn about him, the more I am impressed with Jesus 
because he is the perfect blending of grace and truth. Now, some people can be very truthful, but show very little grace, and they're very difficult to be around. Because they have a tendency to make you feel guilty. Now, other people are very gracious, but not very truthful. And they're fun to be around for a while because they make you feel good, but you know after a while that they're pretty flaky. They're not going to tell you the truth. They're not honest. So Jesus was neither hard nor flaky. He spoke the truth with candor and honesty. Yet his grace caused people to marvel. In Luke 4.22, the people marveled at his gracious words. And that's how we should be too. In Ephesians, it talks about speaking the truth in love. John 1.15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now this idea of Jesus coming before John, it happened several times in this chapter. Remember that chronologically, humanly speaking, John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. Yet Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. John 8.58 So, John's reference to Jesus being before him and being preferred before me is not a reference to Jesus' human chronological age, but to the eternal nature of his being. that He has always existed. Uh, verse 16, And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. This word fullness is really important. In him, the whole fullness of divine grace has become actively present. And for this reason, the relation of the believer to him, Jesus, can be described as a continual receiving from the superabundance. Now, I'd never heard of that word superabundance before, but I really like it. I read it in a commentary. And I can't think of a better word to describe what God has to offer us, a superabundance. So grace for grace literally means grace upon grace, continual grace, inexhaustible grace. There's a superabundance of this, not just an abundance, but a superabundance. Remember Romans 5.20? Even where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. You cannot exhaust the grace of God if you embrace a person of Jesus Christ. Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved favor towards you, resulting in our forgiveness, sanctification, victory over sin, and his agape love in our hearts. Now, coming back to this word fullness, this is, speaks of Christ in his deity, Christ in his godhood. One of the verses I want to read is Colossians 1.19. It's on the screen. It says, For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And then in Colossians 2.9, For in him the whole fullness of deity, the Godhead, continues to dwell in bodily form, giving complete expression of the divine nature. And you are in him made full, and having come to the fullness of life in Christ, you too are filled with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and reach full spiritual stature. And he is the head of all rule 
and authority of every angelic principality and power. So that second verse there is from the Amplified Version. And it just brings it out really nicely. For in him the whole fullness of deity, the Godhead, continues to dwell in bodily form. So the cults and everyone else who say that Jesus is less than God, in John it's talking about the fullness. I'll go back to that. And of his fullness we have all received. And these verses better explain or further explain what that fullness is. It's the fullness of, his, of the deity of God is in him. It's full. It's not part. It's full. So Jesus, although fully man, is also fully God and therefore has all of God's power and love and grace. And because Jesus lives in us, we too have access to this super abundance, if I can use that word again. We are complete in him and we don't need anything else. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So here we have the, uh, a fairly strong hint of this new order that's coming in, the new covenant, um, and it's re- going to replace the old covenant. So the law was given on a quaking mountain, grace and truth were born in a quiet manger. The law was written on tablets of stone, grace and, and truth were written on a heart of love. When the law came down, 3,000 people died. When the Spirit came down, 3,000 people were saved. As the scriptures say in several places, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. Or in this case, Jesus gives life. Verse 18, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. So the word Son. Now God, no one has seen God, that means God the Father. And the Son is referring to Jesus as God the Son, second person in the Trinity. Now, people get confused when it says the only begotten Son. The phrase only begotten means unique, the only one of its kind. There is only one Son of God. There is only one God the Son. It does not suggest that there was a time when the Son was not, and then the Father brought him into being. Jesus Christ is eternal God. He has always existed. And at least nine times in John's Gospel, Jesus is called the Son of God. And I've got the references here. And remember that John's purpose in writing this book is to convince us that Jesus is the Son of God. Also regarding the term only begotten is uh, an idea that Fruchtenbaum presents. Uh, He says the term only begotten is a legal term that stresses the rights of the firstborn, that is the one who has the position or authority of the firstborn, and Jesus has the rights of the firstborn. While he always had a sonship relationship to God the Father, he was appointed a son in a unique way at his resurrection. In the Roman culture of that day, and Paul deals with this concept in Galatians chapter 4. A Roman son who was born into a Roman family was positionally always a son. However, only when he reached the age of maturity was he declared a son by the father. That is the same picture here. He always was the eternal son in his relationship to God the father, but 
at a certain point, he was declared a son. And that happened at his resurrection. And you can see Acts 13.33 and Romans chapter 1, verses 3-4. to 4. Now, Jesus, the word or logos, is the perfect declaration or revelation of the unseen God, of the Father. The Father and the Son belong to the same family, the Trinity, if you can call that a family. And Jesus has declared the nature of the unseen God, the Father, to man. Now, we don't have to wonder about the nature and personality of God the Father. Jesus has declared or revealed him to us, both with his, both with his teaching and his life. So, bottom line, we can't understand God the Father apart from knowing God the Son, apart from knowing Jesus. And this reminded me of this conversation that you pick up in John chapter 14. So it says, starting in John 14 verse 1, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I am going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And verse 7 is one of the key verses here. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Isn't that a pretty clear verse there? We have seen the Father by looking at Jesus. But Philip still doesn't get it. Philip said, he joins in the conversation here, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Now, notice at the um, end of the highlighted bit there, it's, it's got an exclamation mark. Okay, So Jesus is saying this in an exclamatory way. Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Okay, he's kind of trying to get the point across here. These disciples are are not so bright. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or at least believe, because of the work you have seen me do. So, the disciples had been around Jesus for over three years, following him around, talking to him, witnessing the miracles and compassion, listening to his teaching. And why were they so blind? I mean, what did Jesus say? Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, I think there's two possible answers for this. Firstly, there is unbelief. And secondly, there is a lack of understanding. And they're probably linked. So it wasn't until after the resurrection that the disciples finally started to understand the sacrificial love that Jesus had for the whole world. That he was willing to give up his own life to save his enemies. Now, in the same way, I said the disciples weren't too bright, but you know, sometimes I'm not too bright either. (laughs) Um, It's possible, as for me as a Christian, 
to have Jesus with me, in me, and yet still not know him very well, to still not understand his nature, his love, his grace, mercy, power, and holiness. And just like the disciples, I believe that we can miss who Jesus is because we have our own agenda, our own will, our own plans, our own desires or ambitions or goals in life. Do you remember what the disciples wanted? They wanted Jesus to free them from the Roman occupation. They didn't understand that Jesus was freeing them and the whole world from Satan's occupation. So, John Corson says, The Greek word translated declared in John 1.18 is exegomai, from which we get a word exegesis, which means to expound. So, Jesus expounded on the Father. He explained who the Father was because Jesus had seen the Father. And now we are to expound on Jesus because we have seen Jesus. And therefore, the key to all Bible interpretation, the key to hermeneutics is really him eneutics. It's all about him, Jesus, right? So whether you're teaching a Sunday school class, preaching to thousands, or serving on the mission field, expound upon Jesus. Look for him in every passage and on every page of scripture. And if you focus on Jesus, you'll also behold the Father as well. So how can we be witnesses or declare who he is if we are not really sure who he is or we're not seeing him clearly? And we need to take our eyes off ourselves and focus on Jesus. And one of the um, exhortations that Hebrews gives us is found in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, the the weights and the sin which take our eyes off Jesus, they cause us to see things which are not good, and to focus on things which are not good. We need to look to Jesus, get rid of those other things, and then we can be better witnesses. Verse 19, and this is a testimony of John. So John, uh, both his parents were from the house of Levi. John could have followed in his father's footsteps and served comfortably as a priest. But he stepped out of that priestly duty and he followed God's plan for his life. Now, when the Jews, so when John uses the term the Jews, and it's about 70 times throughout the Gospel of John, he's not making a racial or a religious distinction because virtually all the people in the Gospels are Jews, right? When he says the Jews, he's referring to the Sanhedrin, which is the equivalent of our Supreme Court. So it's a leadership. It's like the government. And it's comprised of the religious leaders of Jerusalem. So these are messengers from the Jewish government, when it says the Jews. Uh, sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Who am I? Well, John could have answered, I'll tell you who I am. I'm a priest. I'm a prophet. I am the miraculously born son of Elizabeth and Zacharias. I am called of God and chosen by God. I am the one prophesied in Isaiah and Malachi. I am the forerunner of the Messiah. That's who I am. 
But it's not what he said, is it? He just says something really simple. All right, in verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So we will find our true identities when, like John the Baptist, we realize we are not the Christ. And you might say along with me, well, I already know I'm not the Christ. But, do we? If we go to our job thinking that we can pull it off on our own ability, if you work on your marriage thinking you can make it because of your own insight and wisdom, if you raise your kids thinking you can draw on your own experience, no matter what your mouth may say, your life says, I am the Christ. If, however, you truly realize you are not the Christ, you'll be a man or woman who spends significant time in prayer today because you will know that without him you can do nothing. John fifteen five. So true life in Christ starts when you put away your can-do mentality and realize you can't do anything without Jesus. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. So who is this guy that these guys are coming along? from the high priest there, and, and they're saying, or the government, Sanhedrin, and they're saying, who are you then? Are you Elijah? And no, John says, I am not Elijah. Now, why would they think he's Elijah? Well, if you read in Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So in a sense, John was Elijah, and you can read about that in Matthew eleven thirteen to 14 and Mark nine eleven to 13 where the disciples ask, is John Elijah? But John the Baptist was not literally Elijah for two reasons. Firstly, when asked the question, he said, I am not. And secondly, Elijah prepares the way for the people before Jesus returns as the judge. That's his second coming. In Jesus' first coming, he comes as the saviour of the world. And this is where John the Baptist is introducing him. And John 3.17, this is the, first, the purpose of the first coming, is God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But the second coming, he will come as judge. Now the next question, okay, so he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, are you the prophet? Well, if you go to Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, God will send you one like me, a prophet, and who would come to the nation of Israel and fully explain the way of God. Then they said to him, "Oh," and he answered, no, I'm not that one. That prophet is fulfilled in Jesus himself. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John sees himself as the advanced man of the great king. His baptism was a preparatory cleansing for the king. And so the idea here is get cleaned up, get ready for a royal visit. Because they used to send messengers ahead of the king. And that's basically what's happening here. We will never lack identity in ourselves of who we are if we learn the secret of John the Baptist, that you're simply a voice to talk to people about Jesus Christ. That's it. You know, people get stuck in midlife crises, 
you know, about oh, what vacation should I have or where should I live and all that kind of stuff. But we, as disciples of Jesus, need to follow the example of, of John the Baptist and say, no matter where I am, I realize I'm not the Christ, I'm not the prophet, I'm not Elijah. I'm simply a voice to talk to whoever comes my way on any given day about the person, nature, and return of Jesus Christ. Because guess what? We are also preparing the way for Christ's coming. Christ has got to come into people's hearts, into people's lives, and we prepare the way. We are, in a sense, forerunners for him, even today. Uh, Verse 24, Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now, this is really interesting, a baptism in those days was mainly to baptize Gentiles into the Jewish faith. So this is why the the governing, the the religious leaders are so confused and, and concerned is because it's Jews who are getting baptized, not Gentiles. So baptism was, in those days, um, one person says, baptism was singularly reserved for Gentile converts to Judaism as a sign of renunciation or letting go of, leaving behind their past life. Therefore, when John burst on the scene baptizing Jews, he caused a ripple that could be felt all the way to the Sanhedrin. Um, David Guzak says, the Jews in John's day practiced baptism. It was an outgrowth of ceremonial washings, but the Jews of that day typically reserved baptism for Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. So to submit to John's baptism, a Jew had to identify with the Gentiles. Okay, A Jew had to identify with the Gentiles. And this was a, a genuine sign of repentance. This was a, a real kind of humbling of themselves. And this helps us to understand why the religious leaders were so confused or troubled. It also helps us to understand why they themselves didn't want to get baptized, as we see in the other Gospels, because their hearts were hard, they were proud, and they were self-righteous. And this is the same reason today that people reject the Messiah. It all comes back to understanding that we are not good, meaning perfect. We have all failed God's righteousness and holiness test, the Ten Commandments. And therefore we need a saviour to redeem us, to pay our price, to free us from slavery to sin. So for the Jews to, again, for the Jews to submit to John the Baptist's baptism of repentance was a very humbling thing. They were admitting they were sinners, that they weren't good enough, that compared to God's perfect standard, they were not righteous. They weren't trusting in their laws to make them righteous. It was a sign that the laws weren't enough for them to be righteous. So in that way, John was preparing them. Verse 26, John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. So why do you baptize? Well, there stands one among you whom you do not know. The one standing in your midst, Jesus, is my motivation for doing what I do, said John. So, Two, the person who perceives the presence of the Lord at the office, in the shop, or at school, in the paddock, whatever it is, in the home, cannot help but speak about him. Because when we experience God's presence, we want to talk about him. 
So why was Jesus in the desert with John? Was it because he wanted to talk about politics or sports or financial strategy? No. (laughs) Jesus was standing in the midst of that group because he knew John the Baptist would be talking about him. So if we want to experience more of God's presence in in our homes, talk about Jesus in your home more often and you will sense his presence more. Talk about Jesus in the office tomorrow or at school tomorrow or wherever you are and then you'll have more of an awareness of his nearness. So whenever someone talks about Jesus, he'll be there. There's a verse I really like in the Old Testament. It's Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate or extol his name. I just find it great that God finds pleasure in us talking about him. It's like a father taking pride and enjoying his children playing with him and, and um, wanting to be with him. And that's, that's our Heavenly Father. It's beautiful. Verse 27. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. So we've already been through the preferred before me. It's talking about Jesus being eternal. But this whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Now, untying the strap of the sandal, you do that before you wash the people's feet. And that was a duty of the lowest slave in the house. And here's a quote from David Guzik. Among rabbis and the disciples, there was a teacher-student relationship that had the potential for abuse. It was entirely possible that a rabbi might expect unreasonable service from their disciples. One of the things which was considered too low for a rabbi to expect from his disciples was the untying of the rabbi's sandal strap. John here says he is unworthy to do even this. So John here is reflecting true humility. There's nothing too low for John to do. He's taken the lowest thing in that culture, in that society, and he said, I'm not even worthy to do it. He's, he's reversing around. He's turning it around. He's like, I'm not even worthy of doing this. So for us, the application, there should be nothing that we wouldn't do for Jesus. Nothing that we consider too low or too hard or too embarrassing and nothing that we wouldn't be willing to give up. So think of the pain and shame Jesus endured for me, for you on the cross and realize that he deserves our full and complete obedience and submission. And one more verse, 28. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Bethabara was located in the rough, rocky region surrounding the Dead Sea, so right down south. Now, sometimes, like John, that's where we are called to witness as well. So don't think that you must wait until your life is perfect, your walk is pure, or your circumstances are okay before you can talk about Jesus. Sometimes we witness most effectively when we share from our desert or wilderness experiences, where we've been struggling, because that makes us real. So we've looked at a few things today. John, as a witness, a witness simply tells what they know to be true. And the only way we can know about Jesus is to spend time with him, looking at him, and then we'll know him and we can tell people what we know to be true. And our motivation for doing things is the presence of God in our hearts. 
Jesus motivates us by his love in us and by his love for other people. And the humility, there shouldn't be anything that's too low for us to do, anything that's too embarrassing, anything that's too hard. Lord, I just thank you for this challenging passage of Scripture, Lord. And we pray that we can learn a lot about John the Baptist and how humble he was. Later on, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. Lord, he was just a really humble guy. And and that's why he was so effective in his service for you. Help us to be humble, Lord, to not have our eyes on ourselves, but rather to have our eyes on you, glorifying you, honoring you, being in awe of you. And then we'll reflect your glory. We can tell people about who you are because we know who you are. We'll also know who the Father is too. So Father, thank you for the revelation that you have given us of Jesus through the word. And I thank you that we can experience you personally in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.